You're listening to the Kingdom Project Podcast. These are discussions on biblical theology and interpretation. The emphasis is on context and grace. The goal is to promote biblical literacy by displacing and debunking most modern interpretations. The challenge is to engage in healthy conversation that may stretch, but sharpen iron. This is The Kingdom Project, and I'm your host, Marcus Hall. All right. Hey, guys, what's going on? New episode. And this uh, this is a sermon. This is a wrap-up on Rethinking the Rapture, Part 2. So it's the conclusion from last week's sermon. I haven't been doing intros on sermons. I've not felt that it'd be uh, necessary. Uh, on this one, however, I'm going to give a little heads up on what's going on, just in case it does. I, I don't know. I've not listened to it. So, so, um, so I did ask a couple of people if it was coherent and they said it was, but let me explain what happened. I had prepared two sermons, uh, originally on this topic. They were very similar. Um, some had a little bit more info information than the other. Anyway, this week when I started, I was using the, using the second one because there was uh, a page and a half in there halfway through that I wanted to start off with. And then I had uh, the, the first one that I drafted behind that one. And what ha- somehow what happened was I ended up getting them confused, laying aside the first one because uh, it was getting in the way, but I, w- I thought I had laid the second one away. So... There's there's a few things, and though though they were similar, uh, there was a few things in there. Uh, I don't know. I, I realized I was on the second draft instead of the first draft, and so I switched them back n- near the end because the first draft had the ending that I wanted to have. <laughs> uh, so, and there's a couple of times in there too that I had uh, messed up on the scripture in the printing uh, or in the copying and pasting of that and and whatnot. And uh, I get that figured out. So if it seems like it's a little chaotic there for a little bit, that's what happened. I, I mixed them up and put one aside and then I realized I mixed them up and brought the proper one back. So luckily they were uh, so similar to one another it probably still got the same message across. However, I just wanted to point that out in case it does sound like it's a little inconsistent. And that's what happened. Ne- nevertheless, the message still got uh, across of a uh, audience relevant or first century context um, on First Thessalonians 4 and what that meant for them. And uh, anyway, without further, uh, further ado, here you go. Rethinking the Rapture, part two. All right. So did anybody read anything last week after we ended when I was teaching audience relevance? <laughs> Remember how we left off last week with the whole, you, the Thessalonians, right? <laughs> so we're picking up this week where we left off. We're in First Thessalonians, chapter 4 will be our text still. 
Um, and we'll look at it there in a moment. So I want to recap from last week that we're talking about the rapture. So we're rethinking the rapture, right? We looked at the, the section in Matthew 24 about Noah, the days of Noah, and who was left behind in Noah's day. It was Noah, right? The wicked were removed, so it's been, it's been taught differently there. You want to be left behind. <laughs> you don't want to be like in <laughs> Tim LaHaye's books, left behind. It's, it's the opposite. It's backwards. Uh, I gave you the, a futurist interpretation of, of the text. Uh, a more proper interpretation of it being Jesus returning with the dead and those who are still alive greeting the king coming back to his territory to take dominion over it. We looked at that. And then we ended with the audience relevance to start questioning what exactly is going on with uh, Paul writing to the Thessalonians. It has to have audience relevance. All right. The Bible is a historical narrative. And there's poetry, there's psalms, there's prophecy, there's apocalyptic language. There's all of these things. But the first and foremost thing that you have to know is when you're reading, it's not written to you. Right? That's what I was trying to get across. I've said it many times. The Bible's not written to us, but it's written for us. There's still application. There's still things to be learned. But there is no, there is no, uh, there's no book in here that's written to the congregation of Forest Baptist Church, right? It's not there. It's always to Galatians, the Ephesians, the Thessalonians, all right? So looking at all the stuff that we've looked at already, we're going to look at the audience relevance. But I also just want to tell you guys that from the, what I told you about the history of it with uh, John Nelson Darby and Schofield and D.L. Moody that in Western culture, all right, mainly America, we're the only ones that have a rapture doctrine. N.T. Wright, I don't know if many of you know who he is, but he's from Britain. He calls the rapture an American obsession. Um, he calls the futurist view of eschatology an American obsession as well. So something's got to be going on when we see that the rest of the world and the rest of the church does not see things the rest of, like we do and it's only been around for less than 200 years. We should question that. It's okay to do that. Uh, some people get mad about it. And I will tell you firsthand, I got mad about it when I first started to study it. <laughs> I, but I first... Once I knew there was other views, so I went through the, to, the, to the rapture first, and I started to study that. And then I went on with other things. It made me feel lied to and, and used and all that, but it was just like people. But I've said before, they're not lying to you on purpose. This is how people have been taught in seminaries. Dispensational theology is the main type of theology in, in Western culture. It's just there. Most of us have... Bits and pieces of it there, and we don't even know it. And we don't even know, we've never even heard the term dispensational theology, let alone dispensational pre-tribulation, pre-millennialism eschatology. <laughs> right? Yeah, see? You don't know. Like, what? What is that? All right? 
you guys know the situation in China, right? And the church, the whole underground church there, people are persecuted, right? If they're found out, a, a pastor recently got arrested and all that. And he had a letter, had already, he had written in case that had happened. But that was good. It's an interesting story. But there's people in China, like, they don't want American preachers coming over there to preach in the underground church. Because their view of what the Bible says is more optimistic. It's about the kingdom growing. It's about, you know, the mustard seed, the leaven. It's about them getting to triumph out of where they're at right now, being secretive underground to have freedom to worship Jesus in their country. They want that to spread. They're praying that the, that country gets saved, right? So in the underground church, they're, they're, they're raising up people that are lawyers and police officers and uh, political figures and stuff to send them into it to influence they don't want american pastors coming there talking about rapture and apocalypse and antichrist and stuff like that because they don't see it so there's different interpretive lenses there with that being said who's right you know we can all probably agree to disagree on the right ones that are out there but at the end of the day i want you guys to pick like i said i'm not going to tell you which one to pick, you know, I'm not going to force it on you. That's not my job. All right. So when we ended last week, I was saying, let's look at the audience relevance. I think that's the first way to really get what's going on. We had a conversation last night over dinner, man. I don't know if you guys ever had just the theological discussion over dinner. <laughs> that's my favorite thing. <laughs> eating Mexican and talking about theology for two and a half hours. <laughs> That's what I do. I'm the... But it was, it was double-sided talk. It was great. Some, they, they were younger. They were like 20. They're going to be 23. And they started, I was like, audience relevance. Blah. And they're like, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's written to the, like, they were, they were getting it. And I was like, this is fun. So <laughs> we kept talking because they had questions. All right. So and I told them, like I've told you guys before, I was like, the problem is pastors are preaching application, not interpretation. And so when you get 10 people in a room, right, I've said I know I've said it numerous amount of times. There's 10 different like, hey, what's this verse mean to you, Tom? It's going to mean something different to you than it does to me. And it does to you. Right. So we got we got Tom and Lando with different versions and me and Johnny in the corner. Everyone's got different, but that's not the point. That's application. That's what you're seeing that you're pulling out that you may be getting. I don't, and then I'm like, I don't care what it does really mean to you and what it means to me. I want to know what the Holy Spirit meant when he inspired the author to write it, right? Because what's at stake here is if someone's lying, then it's either not sufficient. The inerrancy of scripture is, is off and we got a problem. All right. So let's look at this text again and let's start to weed through it. I'm going to give you that audience relevance interpretation today. So this would be your there's sort of two interpretations for this for in in audience relevance in the first century context. All right. So you're going to have the proper future interpretation and then you're going to receive this and then you can decide what you want to do with it. Okay. so. We start at 13, chapter 4. 
But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep. All right? That you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. Okay, For the Lord himself will descend from uh, heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Right? Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Okay, encourage. Encourage one another. Who's asleep, right? Talks about people, we who are left, we who are remain. All right. So what did the original audience understand this to mean? That's the question. We have to ask that. When Paul wrote to them, he was writing to Thessalonian Christians who lived in the first century, right? So we must understand this if we're going to understand what he's saying correctly. I believe that's the number one thing. Audience relevance, all right? So, first of all, who are those who sleep in Jesus, right? Who is that? Those who have passed. Those who are dead, all right? But he goes on to say about that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. Do you guys know what the hope is? Does anyone know what the hope of, of Israel was? Okay. Resurrection. Resurrection. <laughs> the hope of Israel was the resurrection. No t- Old Testament terms. But if you look at Acts 24, all right, <clears throat> this is a hope that the saved have that the unsaved did not have. Acts 24, 14 and 15, it says, But this I confess to you that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets. Okay? Law and prophets. What is this? It's all the Old Testament. Okay? So having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. Okay? So that's just one proof text. I understand that. Um, we can go to Acts 26, though, and move on just two chapters to 6 and 8. And it says, And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our twelve tribes hope to, to attain, as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope, I am accused by Jews, O king. Why is it? thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead. Resurrection is the hope here. So in, in uh, verse 13 of 1 Thessalonians uh, 4, 
He's saying, I don't want you to be uninformed that you may not grieve as others who are unsaved do, do, uh, who have no hope. The hope of the resurrection. So this hope, right, is the resurrection. Okay. But what did they understand about the resurrection, right? That's another thing we would have to ask there. There's a lot of information here. I'm just trying to make it uh, simplistic for you. All right. We know the view that we hold, but is it the view that they hold? The traditional view is that a believer dies, their bodies go to the grave, their spirit goes to heaven to be with God, and they're, they're in this uh, disembodied state awaiting the resurrection at the end of time, right? We talked about that last week, you know, who here believes that your loved ones are gone and with the Lord? We all raised your hand, but how many of us also believe that there'll be a day that the dead arise? So we all raised our hand. Inconsistency, right? Because we've been taught it's physical, all right? So this is that, that, that whole, like, at the end of time, the end of the world, the Lord returns, resurrects bodies of the dead saints, Puts them back together if that's a thing, right? Because people, uh, um, we just talked about it earlier. What if somebody was cremated? Their ashes are all over. <laughs> Have to put them back together, right? Nothing's impossible for God. Obviously, that doesn't matter, right? Uh, people will say, don't get cremated because of that reason. But what about people that were, you know, have been blown up or whatever, you know? I mean, you know what I mean? So it, we just make, I think we just make dumb argument sometimes (laughs) just to be honest but but when he rises them puts them back together he would he changes the physically resurrected bodies into spiritual immortal bodies that are like his all right but here's here's the problem with that view if we think it's an actual physical resurrection out of the graves all right In case you did not know, Paul, the apostle, taught that the resurrection was actually about to happen in his day. All right. So now I know I'm going to start stretching you guys here. Okay. So you can turn to Acts 24. But I'm going to read this out of the Young's literal translation. Okay. So it's Acts 24 verses 14 and 15. All right. It says, and I confess this to thee, that according to the way that they call a sect, so serve I, the God of the fathers, believing all things that in the law and the prophets have been written. All the Old Testament. We've already read this, but this is Young's literal. Having hope toward God, which they themselves also wait for, that there is about to be a rising again of the dead. Both of the righteous and unrighteous. The resurrection was about to happen in Paul's day. Right? So what is this in light of the actual narrative that's going on? Right? Now I would say this resurrection is God removing all the old covenant dead saints out of Sheol or Hades, which is the grave taking them to heaven to live in his presence. Because prior to Jesus' work, no one was going to heaven, all right? 
No one no, that hadn't happened. John three thirteen says, "No one has ascended into a he, into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man." Now we know that there's a couple there in the Old Testament. Elijah, he he didn't even die, right? But those that are dying, did you guys know too? We have to. Uh, this is just so. I, I'm just always so interested. In, did you guys know that there were people that re, that were resurrected when when Jesus was crucified? It's in Matthew 27. It says the tombs of the saints open up and the bodies come out and they walked into the town. It says they walked into the city to testify of what was going on. We don't ever, like, that's all, like, we don't, what happened there? <laughs> What's going on? That's crazy, right? It's not just Jesus, like, it's recorded there. In Matthew 27, it says that. It's just interesting to me. I have found some historical records that have stated there was over 500 tombs that had uh, been opened or like shaken open like from an earthquake uh, in, in Jerusalem at that time. Uh, so it's really interesting to me. To, to, but it's there. It's like, man, we don't talk about that. Excuse me. <laughs> <It's not laughs> There's no bottled water. <laughs> yeah, we have to get some. Okay, so prior to Jesus... All who died went to this holding place of the dead and they waited for Jesus' work to take place, all right? They were waiting for the atoning work of Christ and the resurrection from the dead. So until Christ had paid for for the man's sin, if you will, or until he was crucified and, and his resurrection... He, he, uh, nobody could go into God's presence. So to be taken out of Sheol and brought into the presence of God is what the Bible calls the resurrection. That's the biblical term for it. Okay? So, those who are asleep that Paul talks of here, they're the dead saints of the old covenant age that were in Sheol. And Paul assures the Thessalonians that when Christ uh, would put an end to this old covenant age and consummate this new covenant that's going on, all right, this, this, this stuff going on. Remember, we have all this Jewish stuff that's going on. The Judaizers and Paul saying no. And they're saying, if you really want to be saved, you have to be circumcised, all this stuff. There's all this stuff going on parallel after the cross from 30 AD to 70 AD, okay? I call it the second exodus. That's what's going on. It parallels the first exodus very well. We don't have time to talk about that, though. <laughs> You'll have a lot of questions, I'm sure. Okay, so just stick with me. But there's going to be this parousia, which is a presence of this consummation of this new covenant age that puts the old covenant age to an end. So Paul is assuring the Thessalonians that when this takes place, those who are dead in Sheol, they will be rescued from uh, that Jesus is taking and rescuing the old covenant saints from the grave. They will be resurrected. All right. That church there were they were concerned of those who had already departed. Paul reassures them by telling them not to worry. For they would rise with Christ at this parousia. All right. Is that confusing to some? Okay, parousia just means presence, okay? And then he says, we who are alive, who are left, will follow in 
our turn. Well, that seems to be very specifically toward the first century Thessalonians there, those who are alive, right? In 15, for this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, indeed, right? God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, all right? We went over some of this last week, too, at the end. But this is so important. This importance of understanding all this is vital because this is how I ended last week. What's at stake? The reliability of Scripture, the promises of God, and whether Jesus is a true prophet or not. It, it, it's, it's the Thessalonian believers in the first century, in Paul's day when he's writing this, who are actually suffering a tribulation. And this tribulation is at the hands of the Jewish unbelievers that have rejected Christ, all right? So those Jews, according to Paul, are going to be repaid tribulation at a certain point in their future, in their near future. And Paul uses this promise to encourage the Thessalonians. Now think about this. We are trying to figure out what it meant to them when they received this letter, all right? Of what encouragement... Would it be if the Holy Spirit's inspiring Paul just to secretly mean it's going to come some 2,000 years, 3,000 years later? You guys understand that? We pull this out, put it in our time frame. It's for us. What type of encouragement and reassurance of them being safe and held by God's promises, what does that mean to them if it's for 2,000 years later? It's of nothing. It's of no importance to them at all. Right? That's encouragement of the worst kind. Right? Say, I'm going to come and help you, Tom, with the things that you need help with, but it's going to be my great-grandson who comes later and helps your family. <laughs> right? Like, oh, what does that mean? Right? So do we, we have to ask, does God lie? Did the Holy Spirit lie? Was Paul lying under the influence of the Holy Spirit, right? And the reason why I say that is because the people, the dispensationalists, all right, the guys that made this up, they say this is all here to keep them and every generation on their toes spiritually just for the sake of it. Jesus, Paul, Peter, Holy Spirit, they just, they just want everybody to be ready at all times. Every generation to always be looking and thinking for a resurrection and all that. All right. I can't buy that, especially if somebody thinks they were wrong. <laughs> all right. So I'll keep moving. But notice that, again, we... We who are alive, right, in that text, who are left. These are time statements, too. Audience relevance, time statements. The we must be seen as the collective group of Paul and his audience there, okay? So they, Paul and the Thessalonians, were expecting this to happen in their lifetime. It's very clear throughout the whole book, all right? 1 Thessalonians 1, 10. All right. 
It, it says to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. That is Jesus who rescues us from the wrath to come. There was wrath coming to them in that day. <clears throat> now, 1 Thessalonians 2, 19. You're going to look at this. Now, I want you guys to... I'm going to... Hold on. i got a different translation there. So, This can get confusing. Just stick with me to the end. Okay. What was that? 1 Thessalonians 2. Because I want to see what this says here. Let's just read that. Um, no, that's the wrong one. I'm sorry. <laughs> Three. That translation is totally different. Sorry. I got two sermons up here I'm looking at. <laughs> Three, 13. Bearing with one another. God, peace. Oh, first is five. What about five? I think these are seconds. Second, yeah, Second Thessalonians. Sorry. Now this can get confusing when you hear this word here. It's coming up. Second Thessalonians chapter two. In the middle there, uh, eighteen, and a little bit in the middle there. He, he's saying. We wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us, all right? And then here in 19, he says, For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? Now, when he says coming, so we're going to think the coming of the Lord. If you think it's future, but it's parousia, it's presence, all right? So this happens time and time again. What's the text? 2 Corinthians 2.19. Okay, now we can get this, this can turn into all sorts of things, but I want to show you that in that Paul is writing to the Thessalonians, they are ex clearly expecting something to happen within their lifetime. Okay, <clears throat> okay, now I think this is it. <clears throat> Now, our headings in our Bibles can get us confused. It's not taking <laughs> into account audience relevance. Okay, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, all right, starting at 5. It says, this is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you, who is you? You guys remember, who is this? That you, who is it? The Thessalonians. The Thessalonians may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you... Thessalonians are also suffering, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Okay, so it's just over and over and over again. These people in this church, the Thessalonian believers, are going to be given rest 
from their enemies when the Lord does this, right? He comes in this presence, this parousia, this parousia, if this is not going to happen here, because we read these words, right? Lord Jesus revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. So we see that as like second coming language, right? It's the presence, though. If this is not to happen within their lifetime, as this is not relevant to them, like I said earlier, what's going on? There's no, there's no hope offered there, right? There's a false hope, and they're being deceived. What kind of, you know, what, what is it? But Paul's assuring that them, that Christ here, this revealing of this heaven and these angels and this, this fire and all this stuff, this punishment, the presence... Nine is the point. The presence of the Lord. Okay? They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. Okay? There's a coming on the clouds Jesus talks about. Alright? Why do we picture that? Jesus coming on these clouds, right? Sitting on there like... (laughs) That's not what it means. Coming in the clouds is apocalyptic language that's used all throughout the Old Testament of judgment. So if we're waiting to see Jesus come on the clouds, that means he's going to come to destroy us. We don't want to see that, (laughs) right? That's not what we want to see. Coming on the clouds is used over and over again um, all through the Old Testament. Like Babylon's going to be destroyed, right? Who, Who destroys Babylon in the Old Testament? The Assyria, the Assyrians. Now, in those prophecies, God's saying, you're going to see me come on the cloud and destroy you. It's my paraphrase. But it's the Assyrians that came and destroyed them. It's all about destruction. It's about judgment. God was always prophesying coming on the clouds. Now, there's other things with clouds. We'll see this. But um, but Jesus said, you'll see the Son of Man coming on the clouds. It does not mean his return to earth, physical and bodily. It means there's a destruction to come because in Matthew 24, he states that this generation, all right, audience relevance, I'm totally off track. <laughs> this generation shall not pass away till all these things take place. Okay, what's he doing there? He's answering questions from the disciples about the destruction of the temple in the Jerusalem. Right? So, Young's literal puts this in this way in, in 1 Thessalonians four fifteen, we start all over. For this to you we say in the word of the Lord that we who are living, who do, who do remain over to the presence of the Lord may not precede those who asleep. All right? And then let's go to 16. 1 Thessalonians four sixteen. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of a trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. All right. So the Lord himself will descend from heaven. The word descend was commonly used with the priest's descent out of the temple. Okay. Out of the temple complex. Okay. <clears throat> to announce... That atonement has been completed. Okay? So if we're going to rightly interpret this and the whole word of God, we have to do work. Thankfully, I've done it for you guys. Okay? So <laughs> applying the rules of these interpre- interpretation, hermeneutics, all right? <clears throat> it's 
Scripture interprets Scripture, okay? So there's no part of Scripture that can be interpreted in such a way as to render it in conflict with what is clearly taught elsewhere in Scripture. All right? So we're going to do some comparing, and we'll see that this is all apocalyptic language. That's what I've been talking about. And it speaks of judgment, okay? And like in Matthew 24, this helps us better understand its meaning. Matthew 24, 30. It says, then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven in power and great glory. Now, if that sounds familiar, it's the, it should, because that's the parallel text to the, the passage in Thessalonians that we've been reading. And Jesus spoke these words in context of the destruction of Jerusalem, like I just said a minute ago. And it said the third generation would see all those things fulfilled, right? That's Matthew 24, 34. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place, all right? So in biblical language, clouds is symbolic of God's wrath and judgment against the enemies of his people. David said that the Lord delivered him from his enemies while descending on the clouds. The Lord said that he would ride into Egypt on a cloud to punish them. This is Isaiah 19, 1, right at the beginning. An oracle concerning Egypt. Behold, the Lord is riding on a swift cloud and comes to Egypt. It's just funny when you start to picture it. <laughs> it's like riding on a swift cloud, right? Behold, the Lord is riding on a swift cloud and comes to Egypt, and the idols of Egypt will tremble at his presence. And the heart of the Egyptians will melt within them. Did he literally ride on a cloud? We have to ask that. We've been taught that most likely he probably did, but he didn't. This is called apocalyptic language. But Egypt received this judgment at the hands of Assyrians. The ideal of Jesus physically coming on the clouds would have been contrary to the actual nature of understanding all the old covenant uh, Prophets and everything that's contained within the long prophets. So Paul's talking to the Thessalonians about Jesus coming in judgment on Jerusalem at that time. It was building up. And when this happened, the old covenant saints were raised out of the grave spiritually and brought into the presence of the Lord. All right. So <clears throat> just a little bit more time. Looking at some words, there's this word, then, he says, then, we who are alive, who are left. Then, uh, it's the Greek word, epita, and it means afterwards. That's all it means. Afterwards, we will be caught up. The words caught up are the Greek word, uh, har harpazo. Harpazo is what it is. I'm totally on the wrong. <laughs> harpazo. Is what that is. And uh, it means to uh, just caught up means something different than actually being sucked up into the sky. Uh, this caught up happens in the presence of the Lord. Okay. So. Let me find this. There's some things I could show you that would be like. Whoa. Okay. Jesus, in Matthew 22 through 25, he's talking to the Pharisees and the scribes. 
whoa, 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 all the blood is going to be on your hands, on this generation. He calls, he calls them the, Satan, or the synagogue of Satan. He calls the temple that. All right? So there's this whole thing going on in the background. But after, after sitting uh, on his... The, the dead in Christ would rise first, right? Like I said, this, this whole language is the priest coming out of the temple, pronouncing this blessing. blessing. The dead rise, gathered into the presence of the Lord, the Holy of Holies, at the end of the period of the law. If this isn't true, then we're all under law. Since every part had to be fulfilled before it could cease according to the words of Jesus, right? So after setting, he's sitting on his throne, he'd be putting all these things of the old Jewish order under his feet. And then Jesus, Peter, Paul, they all say it would not be finished until the end of this Jewish tribulation when their authority, their kingdom, their power was completely shattered. So all the law had to be fulfilled as the old temple was destroyed. And Jesus steps out of the eternal temple to bless from the new covenant of righteousness, rise up spiritually those who had died out of that grave, out of Hades, into his presence at that time. You're all confused, aren't you? <laughs> right? Now that caught up thing, we who are still alive are caught up, that harpazo, Paul uses this, this word in 2 Corinthians when he says, I know a man in Christ who was caught up in the third heaven. It, he doesn't know if it was his physical body or if it was spiritually. It can mean both. I take it as spiritually. So I believe it indicates that, that those who were dead in Christ first were the first ones to be caught up in the glory presence of God. And then at some later point, those, any of us from then on, from now, who die, are, uh, we too are caught up together with them forever in the presence of the Lord, to be with them in the, for eternity. All right? So that's, that's the first part there. Those who were dead, when this finally all comes to completion, spiritually, they're into the pre presence of the Lord. All, we too, afterwards, as we die, are caught into the presence of the Lord, spiritually. Or... All right. Or <laughs> the other part of this, the, the point of this is that when Christ came in the clouds, he spiritually gathered those who were alive to be caught up in the kingdom. And Jesus, Jesus spiritually returned with believers to the earth to be with them forever in his presence. We're in his presence, right? We're, we're, in, we're seated in heavenly places, but he's as much here as we are there. The presence of the Lord. We're caught up in his presence. So it was a spiritual event that was visibly manifest with the destruction that happened in Jerusalem and the temple. So this ideal of being caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air is a picture of God's... Uh, Elect, if you will, and I don't use that word like Calvinists do, but the believers, God's saved, is being brought into his presence in the Holy of Holies. And Paul's not talking about the modern concept of the rapture here. It's not the physical body that's raptured. It's the Christian himself, the believer himself, who is raptured as he is brought into the presence of the Lord. 
The dead were resurrected when Christ's presence manifested and all other Christians were caught up at that time spiritually as well. And it's the process of being caught up or caught away from death and Hades and being gathered in or brought into the presence of the Lord now and for all of eternity. Right? The two, those words, clouds and in the air, it's imagery for the glory as well of God in the temple in the Old Covenant or the Old Testament. It's the cloud that was in the natural temple through the burning of incense by the high priest. And it was the cloud that came at the dedication of the temple under Solomon. It's the same uh, temple cloud in which Jesus ascended as well. And this def- de- this would de- 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 I can't talk. This would definitely define all of these as a spiritual event. It's a picture of the Day of Atonement, where the greater priest, the high priest Jesus, comes out of the temple cloud to bless the people. What was left desolate and destroyed, Jesus was not coming to refill the old, the old religious system of the old covenant. He destroyed the temple through Rome. And it was this temple cloud that at the moment that when we are saved and when we die, we are spiritually caught up, if you will, or raptured to be with the Lord forever. And he's, he's declaring that, that in, in that very spiritual realm, now as a believer, the triumphant Jesus will escort us through and into the temple glory of the holy of holies in that heavenly realm to be with him forever. That's the way I see that part. (laughs) I know there's a lot there. (laughs) So to sum it up, simplest, simple first century, all this stuff's going on. Old covenant has been, has to be, has to be fulfilled. The law has to be fulfilled by by Jesus, right? Uh, Crucifixion, resurrection, all that happens. Judaizers, Jewish people, Old Covenant, the the temple's still there. The sacrifices are still going on. The the priests, all that stuff's still going on. They're opposing the gospel. Paul's like, no, everyone's getting, starting to be killed, be martyred, all this stuff. There's this hope of a resurrection to come to them, as we've seen, audience relevance. And it all ties together with all this other apocalyptic language and all this prophecy that was to happen within their lifetime when the Lord comes, destroys the temple, destroys the, 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 the city of Jerusalem, one point. One million Jews that opposed him were killed. Not one single Christian died in that event. Historically recorded. And at that time, all those that were dead in Christ were rise spiritually to be with his in his presence forever. And at the same time, any believer that would come to the gospel at that point on is caught up in his presence as well because he indwells us because we are the temple. Right? There is no longer this temple in Jerusalem anymore. We are the temple. The church as a body is a temple as well. All right. 